And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. We now continue part two on the topic of covenant theology interviewing Dr. Lee Irons. So Lee, apart from the passage in Hosea 6, uh, where it does mention explicitly that there is a covenant with Adam, uh, are there any other explicit passages in regards to like a proof text uh, for the covenant of works? Yeah, so I mentioned Romans 5, uh, 12 through 21, the two Adams. It doesn't okay. use the word covenant there, but again, it shows that if we accept that work of Christ as the second Adam is covenantal, then and his obedience is imputed to those whom he represents, then logically we have to say the same thing with the first Adam because his obedience is imputed to those whom he represents. His disobedience, his, his sin is imputed. If there's imputation there, then those two individuals, Adam and Christ, are acting as covenant heads. So the covenant concept is clearly implied by Romans 5, um, even though the word is not used, but the concept is there. Okay, I see. So it is, it's implied then. Yeah. Okay. But as far as finding an explicit passage that explicitly uses the word covenant, Hosea 6-7 is the only one. Okay. But it's interesting that it's... Uh, Hosea 6-7 not only provides evidence for the Adamic covenant being a covenant or Adamic relationship being a covenant, it also provides evidence for the Mosaic covenant being a works covenant. (laughs) Hmm. It says, like Adam, they, that is Israel, transgressed the covenant. So the transgression of Israel under their covenant is parallel to the transgression of Adam under his covenant. Mm. And that implies that if you have transgression, that implies that both of those are covenants of works. That furthers the republication. That furthers republication. Yeah. So again, this is this is the problem with holding to non-federalist views of covenant theology, because again, it's pulling at that string that you said, and that that large fabric where it just all falls apart. Another uh, key thing, too, now I'm talking about Mosaic, um, is I think the, uh, the book of Hebrews is critical 
to helping us to see that the Mosaic Covenant has to be viewed as a covenant of works. It's not the covenant of works with Adam in the garden, but it is a covenant of works like the covenant of works with Adam in the garden. And the reason for that is right in the central section of Hebrews, the heart of the book of Hebrews is the exposition of the new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, right? Uh, Hebrews 8 quotes it, and then Hebrews 9 and 10 expounds it. There's a section from Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, three chapters that are just, this whole section is all dealing with the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and trying to interpret it and understand it. And what is the key? I mean, there are many things that are going on there in that whole section, but what is the number one feature of the old covenant that the author of Hebrews identifies? The main feature of it is that it was breakable and that it came to an end. And that's why we need a new covenant. Now, if the Mosaic covenant is, an, is the covenant of grace and nothing but the covenant of grace, how can you say that that covenant was broken by Israel's disobedience and that it came to an end and that we need a new covenant? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's not possible. The covenant of grace cannot be broken. The covenant of grace is God's promise to us he's going to fulfill it all we need to do is believe it there's no condition that we have to fulfill in order to avoid the curse you know it's just simply believing it and receiving the receiving the promise of god so the covenant of grace is an unbreakable covenant the author of hebrews says the old covenant which is the mosaic covenant was a breakable covenant it was broken and it actually is done away with and has to be replaced with a new covenant. So therefore, the old covenant cannot be defined purely as an administration of the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. It's, it's interesting, um, since we're talking about this, Lee, so someone might ask, like the new covenant theologian, they might say, well, what is exactly new about the new covenant? Right, because they often say that we're retrogressive in our view or our hermeneutic. So, what is new about it? The fact that the new covenant is the covenant that is brought about by Christ and His right. fulfillment of the old covenant. He fulfills the law. It's Romans ten four. Christ is the telos that is the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law, so that righteousness might be credited to us. Um, Paul Paul is very clear about it. He says that the law was, you know, Leviticus 18.5, do this and you will live. The gospel is Habakkuk 2.4, the one who believes, one who is uh, righteous by faith shall live. We both have the word life or live in them. Leviticus 18.5 says you, know, you will live by doing these things. Habakkuk 2.4 says, he who is righteous will live. They both talk about eschatological life, but through two different ways. Leviticus 18.5 says it's by doing the law that you live. Habakkuk 2.4 says it's by believing in the gospel, by believing in Christ. It's by having righteousness by faith that you live. So, I mean, again and again, Paul makes this contrast between Inheriting the inheritance by the law versus inheriting it by the promise. Romans 4, verses 14 to 16. Galatians 3, 18. Yep. 
Um, he talks about the law of works versus the law of faith, the righteousness of works versus the righteousness of faith. Uh, he says Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, that a works-based covenant has this situation, that to the one who does the works, the reward is counted as what is due. But the covenant of grace is that righteousness is counted as a gift that's received by faith. One is based on what is due because you've done the works. The other is it's not due to you. You're a sinner, but you've received mm -hmm. the righteousness as a gift. One is by works. One is by faith. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of times people will just make all the covenants. They'll take all the covenants and lump them together and just throw them out. So you take the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and just throw them out, right, when it comes to the new covenant. But you have to distinguish between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant when it comes to how our covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant because it's of one substance with the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was the prophetic preliminary um, uh, presentation of the new covenant. It was the new covenant in promissory form. Um, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And this is 15.6. That's Paul's together with Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 and Genesis 15.6 are Paul's two key proof texts to understand the gospel in the Old Covenant, or the, in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. All right, moving along, since we've talked about the covenant that works in the garden, we've also talked about the republication of um, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of works there. What is the nature of the covenant of grace? What is that? We've talked about it, you know, we've touched on it, obviously, in our conversation so far, but to get to a specific definition. It's, it's the promise. Um, Paul strongly emphasizes that concept of promise. Uh, for example, in Romans chapter 4, um, as verse 12 um, no, verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the, if it is the inherent adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Mm -hmm. So God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham simply believed the promise. Even though it seemed like it wasn't possible that it would be fulfilled, and for a while there, Abraham was trying to fulfill it through the flesh, you know, by taking uh, his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, and trying to raise up this promised seed through his own efforts. But that's trying to do it by the law. That's trying to do it by works, by, by your own fleshly efforts. The promise is that God is saying, I will do it. And it doesn't depend on you. I will do it all. I will fulfill the law for you through Christ, my servant. I will bring you to eternal life, not by your works, but by my power and my grace. And since it's a promise, that means that the only response that fits that is to believe. <laughs> 
just like yep. you know, on the other hand, if, if it was a law covenant, the only response to that is to obey, right? If the inheritance is by the law, then how do you inherit? Well, you inherit the promise by keeping the law, by doing what it commands, by being obedient, by doing good works. But that's not what it is. This is a promise. The promise is saying you don't do something. You simply believe that God is going to do it. That's why Abraham uh, eventually came around and realized that it was by faith and not by the flesh. And so Paul really focuses on that when he says in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead <laughs> since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what faith is. It's believing that God is going to be the one to do it and to trust his word. It's mm -hmm. looking outside of yourself to another. It's looking to Christ and to his work, to his trusting. obedience, cross, his work on the cross for you, and trusting in what he has done and receiving the promise by faith. I think it's interesting that Paul says Abraham did not weaken in faith and that no unbelief made him waver. I mean, wait a minute, Paul. Did, did you read the same passages that I read in Genesis? It looked to me like Abraham wavered. <laughs> right? right. I saw a lot of wavering there. Yeah. I mean, he was trying to make it work through the flesh mm -hmm. with the Hagar way, trying to do it through Hagar. And it didn't yeah. work. There, there was a lot of unbelief there. But why, right. does, why, does, why does Paul say that he didn't have any unbelief? It's because he eventually did come around to full unbelief or to full um, confidence in God. And that was credited to him for, for true faith because it's all based on the promise to begin with. So even your faith is not what does it. And this is, this is actually the, the exact error of modern pietistic theology where it conflates faith and, and obedience. Faith is not an act of obedience. Faith exactly. has, has an obedient aspect in the sense that God commands us to believe. And so if we believe we're obeying that command, but it's really what faith is. Faith is simply receiving the gift. It's, it's a passive empty hand. Right. It's a passive instrument. Right. Exactly. And so even Abraham's faith was, quote unquote, justified. <laughs> and God didn't look at the, the cracks in it. There were cracks there, but God didn't <laughs> Right. <laughs> Thank and, God for that, right? Yeah. Okay. He was saved by the promise. And so... He goes down in history. He goes down in the record books, uh, at least by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Romans 4, he goes down as someone who had no unbelief and who was totally trusting in God's promise because it was based upon the promise, not upon the strength of his faith. Mm -hmm. And then Paul says that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Mm -hmm. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be accounted to us as righteousness, we who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, that's the gospel. So the, you ask the question, what is this covenant of grace? The essence of the covenant of grace is that it's the promise of the gospel. 
promise of Christ doing it in our place. Going all the way back to the uh, to the proto evangelion in Genesis three fifteen, and then the consummation of um, in the, um, the new covenant. Right. That, I view that, I view the covenant of grace as like this gigantic uh, rock, not just a boulder. It's like it's like the rock in Morro Bay. If you've ever been to Morro Bay? It's just this massive rock. Many times. And it's just sitting out there, just jutting out from the sea. And it's just huge. And mm-hmm. it's just this massive, solid, absolutely unshakable, immovable <laughs> slab of, you know, power. And, and that's the promise. The promise is God. He is doing it all. Remember when God made the promise to Abraham? He, just, he was even asleep when, when God appeared in the smoking fire pot and passed between the broken uh, cat pieces of the calves and the birds. Yep. He was in a he was in a stupor. He was like in a trance. He he was completely passive. He's just sitting there watching it happen. That's mm-hmm. what the grace is. It's the promise of God. It's the rock of God's promise. And all you do is just stand by and just look up at it and just go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just believe it. You just receive it. And that's it. So and that's what the whole that's what the whole Bible is all about. The whole Bible right. from beginning to end is about that promise. It's there in Genesis 15, it's repeated in Genesis 15. When you get to the gospels, it's all over the place. Jesus continually, especially in the Gospel of John, right? He says that whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know, he says, I am the bread of life. Come eat of me. I am the water. Come drink of me. If you drink of this water, you will of everlasting life. He makes these promises that are inviting you to believe and you simply come and believe. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, but Lee, going back, um, like for instance, in the Ephesians chapter two, it says covenants of promise, right? Um, so that's actually beautiful administration language in a sense, right? Because therefore it's saying, you know, the covenants that are administrations of that one promise, which is another covenant. Exactly. It's only one promise. But there are a number of different covenants that administer that promise. Genesis 3.15 is sort of a, it's not, not really a covenant, but it's the first revelation of the promise. Mm-hmm. The Abrahamic covenant is definitely a covenant administering that promise. The new covenant, for sure. The Davidic covenant also has that element to it. But the Mosaic covenant does not. The Mosaic covenant is not a promise. The Mosaic covenant is... Leviticus 18.5, the one who does these things will live by doing them. It's Deuteronomy 27.26, that only the one who continues in all of the things written in the book of the law to do them will avoid the curse. It's conditional. Yeah. Do this and live. Right. That's what it is. It's all over the place. And you you made a, a point uh, in regards to distinguishing the Mosaic Covenant and the Covenant of Works. You were quoting John Owen, um, Lee, and then you said that the Mosaic Covenant, and you quote Owen, uh, did not constitute a new way or means of righteousness, life, and salvation. Then you say, since these soteric blessings could only be attained by Christ alone and by faith in him, although the Mosaic Covenant was a, quote, renovation, of the, quote, the commanding power and sanction of the first covenant of works, and thus became, as Paul teaches, 
uh, quote, a, a ministry of condemnation. And then you say, and then you say, yet no one was saved or condemned by virtue of it. So we're saved, uh, we're condemned by the virtue of the covenant of works, but the Mosaic covenant uh, furthers that um, thought in, in regards to the republication of the covenant of works, correct? So what I'm getting at there in that section is to say that although the Mosaic covenant is a works-based covenant, a covenant that enshrines the works principle with the condition that you have to do these things to live and if you don't do them, you're under a curse. It's not a simple re-pristination or re-establishment uh, of the original Adamic covenant of works. Because if it was, then it would be it would not make sense for God to do that with fallen people. Israel is, they're all fallen sinners, right? And there's no way a fallen sinner can, even if they kept the law their whole life, they still have the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to them. So there's no way they can overcome that by keeping the law. So the Mosaic law then, it's a republication of the works principle, but it's at the typological level, not at the level of personal salvation. No one can be saved by keeping the law. Adam could have been, could have attained eternal life by keeping the Adamic covenant of works, but no one can attain eternal life by keeping the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law uh, only leads to, it only shows us our sin and prepares the way for Christ and to keep it. So are, are we condemned by the Mosaic covenant or are we condemned by the covenant of works? Condemned by the covenant of works in the garden. But okay. The Mosaic law reminds us of that. It repeats the requirement of God's holiness, and it shows us we are an Adam and reminds us of the reality of the guilt that, we, um, that we're under because of Adam's sin. So, and you also did mention that the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, therefore, is a pedagogical type of covenant where it leads us to Christ. It teaches us to go to Christ. Yeah, that's what Paul says, right? Galatians 3. It's a pedagogue unto Christ. It shows us, that it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our inability. And it uh, leads us to Christ as the only one who kept it for us. In our... So the, the point is, is that the Mosaic covenant is not simply a... Um, a restatement or reenactment of the exact same covenant of works with Adam in the garden. It's a typological republication of that covenant. In, it's a typological and pedagogical uh, republication of the principle of the works covenant, um, but not a means of salvation. Any Israelite who lived under the Mosaic Covenant, was, uh, who was elect, was saved by believing in the Messiah to come according to the terms of the Genesis 3.15 promise and the Abrahamic Covenant, not by keeping the law. Yeah. So that means that the, that what the key thing here is to understand that the, um, the Old Testament or the, the the old covenant. So that is the, that entire section of redemptive history from Sinai until 
the coming of Christ, is um, complex. It has two layers to it. There's a bottom layer, which deals with personal salvation. So individual um, Old Testament believers like David and so on, uh, they experienced the forgiveness of sins and justification by faith and salvation by faith alone, just like we do at that lower level. But there was another level on top, another layer that had to do with the land. And this land, the, the land of Canaan, was a, uh, a, a reenactment of the Garden of Eden on a larger scale uh, in order to show forth the principles of God's righteousness and God's holiness. Show forth that God requires holiness and God requires obedience. God requires righteousness. And, of course, Israel fails to do that. And so at the end of the Old Testament, Israel is just a total failure. And they've rebelled against God. They've broken the covenant. They're in exile. And they're under the curse. Um, but that's all happening at this upper level of the typology of what God is trying to communicate pedagogically to Israel and to the world and to us today and to those of us who read the Bible um, so that we can see the story and we can see, um, we can see the need for Christ. And we can see so that when Christ does come, think about this. When Jesus does come in the Gospels, all of the stuff about Jesus is described in terms of Israel, not in terms of Adam. So all throughout the Gospels, everything that Jesus does and says, all of his ministry, all of his miracles, all of his teachings, uh, even his title of the Messiah, uh, it's all couched in the context of Israel, not in the context of Adam. Even though in reality, he's the second Adam, but how do we see that he's the second Adam? We see that he's the second Adam by seeing that he's the obedient Israelite. So God created that whole context, that whole history from Sinai until the coming of Christ, precisely to make it possible for the Gospels to be written so that we could see the, the ministry and life of Jesus in an Israelite context. We see him as the Messiah. We see him as the true Israel. We see him as the one who obeys God's law. We see him as the one who brings in the kingdom of God that was initially set up in typological form in the land, but now he's saying it's here. The true kingdom is here. He's the son of David. That's, again, an Israelite concept. Uh, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, that's an Israelite concept. Uh, all of these Israelite concepts are being drawn from that period of redemptive history from Sinai until Jesus in order to explain the work of Jesus, to explain what he is doing. So that when we see him as the obedient Israelite, when we see him as taking upon himself the curse of the law on the cross, we see that he is indeed the second Adam. But we can only see that if we believe and understand that the whole history of Israel is also a re recapitulation of the history of Adam in the garden. And he refers to himself as the temple right. in the new covenant. Right, exactly. That's another Israelite. Um, uh, metaphor. All the, all the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament was designed in order to create metaphors so right. that we and those, could then use those metaphors to describe Christ and what he did. Right. And so those who are in Christ 
i.e., the elect, us. We are the, the, the Israel of God. We are the new Israel of God. Right. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 29, that all of us who, are, who belong to Christ, we are the sons of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Amen. To the promise. Yeah. There's really, because there's no other way. Yeah, it seems to all tie together. If you if you don't take this approach, I think you just you can't make sense of scripture. I mean, you just end up contradicting yourself all over the place. And it, it misses the point. I mean, when we talk about, you know, Abraham and the land promises, you know, and on and on and on, it's like it misses the whole point. Like you just said, it's all about Christ. Yeah. Um Lee, what about um when we talk about the new covenant, let's say, you know, obviously this can get into a, a, a long um, discussion here, but let's talk about um, the administration of the covenant of grace when it comes to the new covenant and how it related to the Abrahamic covenant. Because you have people in the Abrahamic covenant um, who were unbelievers, right? But they were still part of the covenant. And that was the way as well under the Mosaic covenant. But how about in the new covenant? Is that a, a dual nature covenant as well, where you have believer, unbeliever in the covenant? Yes. So both the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant have this uh, dual aspect. There's the internal and the external membership of that covenant. Mm -hmm. So internal membership would be only the elect, those who are truly regenerated. External membership is those who are either professing to believe or who are the children of those who profess to believe and have not owned the covenant for themselves. Um, and so there's always this, this distinction um, between external and internal and there's no, there's no need to, uh, well, it's, it's incorrect to say that the new covenant is only uh, composed of a regenerate membership. Right. That is not correct. We because, can see that, in, right? We can see that in the we can see that in the book of Hebrews, right? So uh, also the reformed some people refer to it as the invisible, invisible, right? That distinction, they use that type of language. So it's interesting because I know you and I have talked about this, and Onig and I have talked about this as well. Where um, you had put a pebble in my shoe many years ago, Lee, where you you had mentioned to me that you cannot make sense of. Um, apostasy without taking these Hebrew passages in, in a covenantal context. Can you explain that further to the audience? Yeah, so <clears throat> um, Hebrews 8 through 10, as I mentioned before, is, is basically a, a three-chapter exposition of the Jeremiah 31 prophecy of the New Covenant. And in the context of that um, exposition, uh, the author of Hebrews says, talks about apostasy. At the very end of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. What is that covenant there? That's the new covenant. So it is possible, according to the author of Hebrews, for somebody to be uh, sanctified in an external way. We're talking about external membership, not internal membership here. Some kind of external sanctification can happen uh, where someone can be a member of the new covenant and be sanctified in that external way by the blood of the covenant, then fall away and be apostate and be worthy of punishment. Now, the mm -hmm. punishment, the, the wrath, the punishment does not come from the new covenant itself. It's coming from what we were talking about before. It comes from the Adamic covenant of works that was broken. Um, but they're cut off from the covenant. Just like Jesus said in, in uh, John 15, the branches that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. So they're cut off from the new covenant and then thrown into the fire of the, the judgment of the covenant of works. Mm -hmm. so yeah, it is possible for somebody to apostatize from the new covenant. It doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It just means that they were a member of the new covenant in an external way, either by a profession of faith or by being born into the covenant from parents who believed and professed faith in Christ. Um, and so they became a member of the new covenant in that external way, but they were never truly saved to begin with. Leva, I, I also have heard that uh, in, to explain Hebrews 10, 29, in which you just mentioned that by which he was sanctified. So they're saying that the author may have also been using some type of facetious language to say that they believe that they were sanctified, but not necessarily were sanctified to uphold the fact that, you know, the elect cannot lose their salvation. Mm -hmm. you, th you find that a, a valid explanation? I've never heard of that explanation before. Um, yeah. I'd have to look into it more. It doesn't, seem like it's being used in a would you say sarcastic way or like a facetious or facetious, sarcastic way yeah facetious way. it doesn't seem that way to me but no um, so then the aspect of one being actually sanctified god sanctifying them and yet not saving them there's an aspect to that then yeah it's like the um the word sanctified is also used in that external way in first corinthians chapter 7, when he talks about um, a marriage where one of the uh, members of the couple is a believer and the other is not, and he says, you know, if the unbelieving husband is made holy, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That's the same word, sanctified, it's the same root. Um, so it's not saying that that the believing spouse automatically saves and converts the unbelieving spouse. It just means that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified in some kind of external way so that they are not, um, so that the children of that union are not unholy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, far be it for me to argue with you, Lee, believe me. <laughs> but again, it says in Hebrews ten twenty nine that, and, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So there's, there is the blood of the covenant, which is Christ's blood, correct? 
So there is something in a, in a way that they are. So you're saying that they are sanctified externally, but not in the same way as an, an, an one who is elect. Right. Yeah. Okay. Set apart from the world. Uh, it's it's um, it's a big deal to be a member of the new covenant, to be a member of the church. Even if you're not elect or regenerate, you're a member of the church. You're set apart from the world in some way. And you have much greater responsibility as well. Well, you know, it's pretty funny because even in Baptistic circles, um, you know, obviously as Reformed, we, we believe in in baptizing infants, you know, but the, the thing is, is that in Baptist circles, they do baby dedications. So they actually do believe that they, those kids are set apart in some way, even though, you know, they don't believe in the sacrament of baptism for kids. Mm-hmm. There's an inconsistency. Even they realize it to some extent. I mean, they will say no, that they're not part of the covenant. But when you do a baby dedication, you're saying, no, there is something special that these kids are born into a co- you know, into a Christian family. There's something different about them, right? Mm-hmm. So I just see an inconsistency there and um, whether that's pertinent or not. But um, yeah, I, these, these are interesting things to ponder for sure. Let me uh, ask you before we get um, get out of here. When we look at um, pagan religions, right, um, in the old, you know, back in the Old Testament that, that Israel was dealing with, um, they had similar types of covenants, right? And there has been accusation by, you know, critics as well, the saying that, look, if there's nothing unique about these covenants in the Old Testament because they stole them from these pagan religions. Could you address that a little bit for us? Sure. So technically that's not correct. It's not that the religions, that the pagan religions used covenants in their religion. It's that the ancient Near Eastern cultures used covenants in other ways. For example, in political agreements. For example, if a a king conquered another nation and the king that was conquered became the vassal of the yeah. suzerain of the king that conquered him and they would enter into a treaty or a covenant uh but it was used in the arena of politics and international relations and you know war and things like that uh it was not used in religion so the pagan religions did not use oh. covenants to talk about their relationship with their gods oh okay so there's kind of a, there's a false analogy that the critics some, that some people use because i i've heard it used in a rather simplistic way the way i stated it to you most of the time it's put that way that you know that the christian that you know jews and christians are just plagiarizing you know from these pagan beliefs no it's not plagiarism it's just human language and human culture um there's so many things in the bible that are that are like that uh paul uses the analogy of adoption adoption was a roman uh practice that was used um, to where the paterfamilias, the head of the family, could, if he didn't have a son, he could adopt another son from somebody else, from somebody else's family, a slave even, and make him his own son. And then he becomes the heir. And when the paterfamilias dies, that adopted son becomes the new paterfamilias and he inherits the inheritance. Um, that's a, a pagan 
concept that was used in Roman culture. Mm. And Paul used that to, as an analogy, as a metaphor to help us understand the wonderful reality that we are adopted as sons in Christ and that we're the, we're going to inherit the inheritance because of that. Um, does that mean there's some sort of dealing or something or some sort of bad thing happening? It's just, right. no, it's just, it's just using, uh, cultural practices to, as metaphors to help us understand the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even the word berit, the word berit in the Old Testament, which is translated covenant, is used in the Old Testament itself to refer right. to these international relations and po- politics and kings having covenants with each other. In the Old Testament, I can give you examples if you want, but you know, Hiram and Solomon, they yes. made a covenant, a berit. Um, Abimelech and Abraham made a berit to to deal with the controversy over the wells and things like that. So it's just human language. I mean, all of language is cultural, right? All of our language is cultural. Right, right. And you can't help but talk about cultural things when you're using language. Mm -hmm. Even just, I mean, everything, every single thing that we say, every biblical term has a cultural connection, right? Uh, Calling Christ the firstborn. Well, there were actual firstborns out there in culture, right? Is that some yeah. bad thing to say Christ is the firstborn? <laughs> it's just right. every, every theological term yes. has a, has a right. relationship to the culture because it's based on human language and human experience. Now, yeah. one thing to point out, though, is this, is that where did the pagans get this idea of making covenants to begin with? Was it something that, that fallen, sinful pagans created on their own? I would say, no, I would say that it probably goes back to the memory of the original covenant between God and Adam. Mm -hmm. And so even after the fall, God, through common grace, kept alive certain um, uh, aspects of the Imago Dei and certain uh, historical um, cultural artifacts that continued in some fallen way it was distorted by their their paganism but it still had uh, a grain of truth to it so the idea that god is the great king even saying god is the king right again that's a metaphor because there are human kings out there so it helps us to understand would say god is the king of the universe we're using a human term to describe god we're using an analogy or a metaphor but Is that a bad thing? No, because God really is the king. And in fact, we should flip it around and say that human kingship is simply an artifact or a pale reflection of something deeper that goes back to creation itself before the fall, where God as the great king was revealed to to Adam and Adam himself was established as a king, if you will, in the garden, given dominion over creation. And so instead of saying that... that, um, that the true religion of Israel and Christianity is borrowing from paganism, we should say that paganism is actually continuing and borrowing the borrowed capital from creation. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So, okay. That's great. That's a great covenantal apologetic. (laughs) Great. Um, That's awesome. Lee, uh, 
What would you give um, to our audience as far as recommendations go? You know, I mean, start like at a popular level and then maybe go to a more scholastic level. What kind of um, things should they read on covenant theology? I highly recommend Sacred Bond. I think that mm-hmm. book is is the best lay level uh, introduction to covenant theology. By Michael Brown and Zach what, Keel? Is, what's it? Yeah. Michael Brown and Zach Keel. Yeah, it's a great book. Highly recommend it. If you want to go deeper into covenant theology, then read Meredith Klein, Kingdom Prologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about, um, let's see, Michael Horton's book, God the Promise, I believe? Yeah, right? God, another good one. Yeah. yeah. He's very clear on the two types of covenants, works covenants and grace covenants. Um, yeah, very good book. Mm-hmm. And what about um, I think you said Meredith Klein? Um, let's say something older, like by a bunch of dead men. <laughs> Who would you recommend? I would recommend The Marrow of Modern Divinity by Edward Fisher. We talked about him at the very beginning. So, the Marrow men were very influenced by that book, and that book has been reprinted and republished in modern editions. And uh, <clears throat> it goes through these issues, talks about. The, the contrast between the, the law of works and the law of faith and things of that nature. So, and I understand okay. that Fisher was a, a layman. Is that, was that correct? Yeah. When he wrote that? Yeah. Also uh, a treatise on the law and the gospel by John Cahoon. It's not spelled like it sounds though. It's spelled C A L Q U H O U N. So Looks like it's pronounced Colcahoon, but it's not. It's <laughs> Cahoon, one of those Scottish names. But he was a Marrow man later on. He was like early 1800s, but he was influenced by the Marrow men and the Marrow modern divinity. <clears throat> this book on the treatise on the law and the gospel is very good. Don't you have that book, Onig, or you have a book on the law and the gospel by a Lutheran, I think? Is it? Yeah, yeah it's by a Lutheran. I forget the name, but yeah, it's right. I can see it from here, but I can't see the author. <laughs> Probably the one by CFW Walther. Yes, yes. That sounds that sounds like that's it. That, yeah, that's it. Do you like that book? Well, he's a Lutheran, so <laughs> the, the Lutheran <laughs> understanding of the law gospel contrast is very different from the federal. Yeah, right, right. Yes. Uh, they don't, they about... don't believe in the covenant of works with Adam. Mm-hmm. So. Oh. Uh, what about the, uh, er- how do you pronounce it, Erskine brothers? Yes, the Erskine brothers are Merrill. They're in the Merrill tradition. Yeah. What? And then one is like, what's his name? Ralph or what was the? Yeah, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. Right. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great guys. Excellent. Great. Well, um, Lee, why don't you tell people where you can be reached? Uh, you can go to my website at uh, upper-register.com, and I have some of the papers that Onig was quoting from on there on covenant theology the mosaic covenant issues of that sort so probably one of the best places to begin on that um on my website there is to uh go to the section uh on my papers so there's a tab that says papers and then to scroll down to the bottom where it says by meredith klein I have some snippets from Klein's writings, like what is a covenant, just a three or four page 
explanation of what, it, what we said before about the two types of covenants, and it depends on who takes the oath. Yeah. Another one on covenant theology under attack. That's a really helpful one that he wrote. <clears throat> um, it was published in New Horizons back in 2003, I think. Um, okay. Covenant theology under attack shows the the. Um, no, sorry, it's 1994. 1994. Um, it shows the uh, the dangers of denying the Adamic covenant of works, and how if you end up with a monocovenantal view that just blends works and grace together, and doesn't see any contrast between the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, that you're going to end up with um, denying the gospel, basically. <laughs> so. Yep. He does a great job of showing that and arguing that. He deals with uh, Daniel Fuller's book. On He wrote a book called Gospel and Law, Contrast or Continuum. We're very familiar with that yeah. work. For... <laughs> and, and Fuller had a big influence on another yeah. theologian. Exactly. Heard That's of. why it was <laughs> named John Piper. Right, exactly. So, yes, name names. Yes. <laughs> so... Uh, Right. In a sense, you could take this article by Klein as a critique of Piper, even though Piper is not mentioned anywhere in it. Yeah. <laughs> but in a way, it kind of is a crit critique of Piper to some right. extent. Mm. Um, well, I would suggest, uh, and I would recommend to our audience that you listen to uh, Lee's MP3 files on his website. I need to get back to listening to them because they are just amazing and um, you'll learn a lot. It, you'll have to dig deep, but it's worth it. I, I oh, really do think yeah. That, yeah. Um, Onik, where can we be reached? We can be reached at BTTRMIN. That's an acronym for Back to the Reformation. So BTTRMIN.org. Our podcast is on Apple, Google, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, and we are on YouTube as well. And our email address is Back to the Reformation. Wow. Yeah, back, our email is back to the reformation at gmail.com and info at bttrmin.org. That's great. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that link. I love it. Great. Well, you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us again. See ya! See ya!